You join us on our perch at the far end of the bar. He's Ben. He's Richard. And just before you joined us, we were talking about two well, two things. We were talking about bad backs, oh, which we won't bore you with. The curse of the bad backs. And we both are sufferers long term. But, you know, let's leave that to one side at the moment. Otherwise, it'll just be half an hour of us two talking about how bad our backs are. <laughs> and no one in our real lives wants to listen to it, so why would anybody else? Oh, I expect they do. <laughs> uh, there, there are probably people... Uh, there, there must be a podcast out there. Your back and you. Or something. <laughs> oh, my back and me. There's a gap in the market. <laughs> there is the, that's the gap that we've been looking for. Uh, the other thing that we were talking about was football stadiums. Stadia. Stadia, yes. I think you'll find. Thank you very much. Yeah, boy. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Obviously classically trained. Comprehensive education coming through there? Uh, The full comprehensive (laughs) education. Uh, Football stadia and what you'd seen in a football stadium apart from football. And rock concerts. Mm. Fireworks display. Yes. Although, you see, I never really understand the concept of paying for a fireworks display. Because you can see them from outside quite easily, can't you? But I suppose in a football stadium, it's not the case that you can see it quite so well. Especially the ground-based, you know, the Catherine wheels and the Roman candles and those sort of things. But I've never been to a fireworks display in a football stadium. But surely, if the stadium is any good, your view of the night sky is going to be severely limited by the stands. Well, I think they just sit you in the front bits where you can have a good view of the sky. Oh, lay you on your back on the pitch. That would be the way forward, <laughs> wouldn't it? Just look at the sky. Otherwise, the best view that you're going to get is from the car park, isn't it? Yeah. Now, what else? Um, I mean, I have seen, I'm not saying I attended, I have seen a speed awareness course in a football stadium. Go on. <laughs> I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it there from the okay. from the classroom. <laughs> um, rock concerts. When was the very first rock concert at a football stadium? I'm gonna. Was I that don't written know. in stone somewhere. It must be written in stone somewhere. I because there was a few big ones in. I mean, there's this famous Beatles and Shea Stadium. It's not a football stadium, but it is a stadium. Baseball, yeah. I think, isn't it? Um, yeah. Didn't the didn't was it the Stones that had a quarter of a million people in the Maracanã in Brazil or something like that? Quite. It sounds authentic, doesn't it? Mm. Um, I just wonder. There, there, there must have been some enterprising football team, lower divisions. Uh, back in the 70s, who decided to put on a local rock band. Mm. And before, just in front of, you know, a couple of thousand. Well, it's a long time since I was a regular at live football matches, mm. but certainly there was a period uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, where you would have half-time entertainment. Yeah. this And, and very often it was you know, a local group managed by the local butcher mm. who would come on and, and do a set of three or four numbers and be booed heavily from the stand yeah. from the moment that the, the first chord emanated from uh, their guitars. The flying sausages, <laughs> that sort of thing. 
Got something you want to tell us? Email thefarendofthebar at gmail.com or find us on Insta, Twitter or Facebook using the hashtag TFEOTB. How are you with fire? I don't mind a fire. You like a bit of fire? Yeah, in the right place. Yeah, I I, I still, I grew up... um, with a grandfather who would uh, would light a bonfire at the drop of a hat, but he had mm. a very very big garden. Um, so, and whichever where, wherever you stand next to a bonfire, the the wind always seems to pull the yeah. smoke towards you. Yeah, I don't know what. There's some probably some some reason. Now, talk to a physician uh, to a, a physicist about that. Somebody who knows, or a meteorologist, somebody who knows about uh, the way the wind blows when it comes to a bonfire. But this isn't a bonfire, although I suppose it's, it's like a fire in a glass. Really. Mm-hmm. There are three drinks here that I'm going to set before you today. Okay. And the first is the eponymous Flaming Sambuca. Right. Have you ever had the Flaming Sambuca? I don't think so. I mean, it's possible that at the end of a particularly heavy session back in the day, mm. I may have done... But I, I don't remember. Well, I think you would remember because it's the one where you're liable to lose your nose hairs. Yeah. What you need for this is one uh, tot of black Sambuca and three coffee beans. I mean, in fairness, I could do with losing a few nose hairs, so maybe this is the drink for me. Oh, there are better drinks. If, if you want to go the full fuzz, get rid of the whole beard. So you put your three coffee beans in a shot glass and you add the Sambuca. And then you light the Sambuca and you let it burn for 10 seconds or so. And then you cover the glass with your hand Mm -hmm. to extinguish it after it's been burning for 10 seconds. Then inhale the air underneath your hand. Yeah. Then you drink the shot. Okay. Then you attend to the burn on your palm. (laughs) Well, that's the way I read it anyway. I've only ever done that once. And I I made the mistake of blowing out the, the Sambuca. I didn't do the hand thing. I blew out the flame. Yeah. And immediately reached for the shot glass and put it to my lips. And of course, it's a hot glass. Yeah. So now I've got. I've got. I've got a burnt lip. It does sound like a particularly daft drink to. It's a daft drink. This came to mind the other day, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll offer Bennett and see how he thinks. And then I thought, what other drinks are there that you set alight? Come with me, if you will. To a bar where they serve the flaming Lamborghini. The flaming Lamborghini. For this, you will require Kalua, Sambuca, Blue Curaco, yeah, and Bailey's Irish Irish Cream. Okay, or even Bailey's Irish Cream. One of those two. Um, so I'm going to pour the Sambuco and the Kalua into a cocktail glass, and I'm going to give you a straw. Uh-huh. Okay. Then I'm going to pour the Sambuca and the Kalua into a cocktail glass and give you a straw. Because I like doing things twice. Right. So I've got two straws now. Yeah. <laughs> I just read it twice. <laughs> One for each nostril. <laughs> <laughs> then I'm going to pour the Baileys and the blue Caracoa. Caraco. How do you say that? Caraco. Caraco, yeah. Is it? I don't know. I've never had it. Caraco. Into two separate... So pour the Baileys and the blue Caraco into two separate shot glasses on either side of the cocktail glass. 
So now I've got three glasses and one straw. Correct. Set the concoction ablaze in the cocktail glass. Okay. So that's, that's the, the one in the middle. The Zambuca and the... Uh, Kalua. 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 Yeah, set that right. off aflame. And then you start to drink that through the straw that I've just given you. While it's aflame? Uh, yes. Now, this, this drink should be drunk in one suck. <laughs> so once the glass is almost empty, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pour the Baileys and the blue, you say it? Caraco. Into the cocktail glass, and you keep drinking until it's all gone. Okay. So, put, so that puts out the flame, I guess, does it? It'll probably put out you as well. <laughs> so basically, you've got three drinks in one. But you've got to get the timing right. And the one in the middle is all aflame, and you're drinking it through a straw. Mm. Um, it's not tempting, is it? No, it's not. The other, th- the other thing, two things struck me when I was reading that. One was that in the old days of plastic straws, remember the old days of plastic straws before we had the wit to not make straws out of plastic? Yeah. Though they probably still do. Um, in the days of plastic straws, you put the, the, the plastic straw into a flaming glass of alcohol, and what would it do? It would melt. That's what I would think. The other thing is that even if you put a waxed cardboard or paper straw into a flaming cocktail of alcohol, mm. it would melt. Yes. So you've got a candle in your cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much a drink, more a candle. Yeah. I don't know how it works. If you want to try that at home, uh, let us know. How you <laughs> please Thank you very please much. don't try that at home. No, I think you should. <laughs> We're in line for serious lawsuit issues. <laughs> I heard it on this podcast. They said it'd be fine. Just, just give it a go. Or, more accurately, I heard it on a podcast. Okay, so there's that one. Now, the, the third and final one I'm going to offer you is a bit complicated. Mm. Uh, you will need... <laughs> Unlike would, the previous one. Uh, no, no. The, 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 uh, honestly, this knocks the previous one into a cocked hat. Okay. Um, for this, you will need Cointreau, Sambuca, a few shakes of cinnamon mm-hmm. and some ice cubes. Okay. So we're light on the contents, but uh, the way to achieve maximum enjoyment is a bit uh, convoluted, shall we say. Right. First of all, get yourself a saucer. Okay. And put it down on the table in front of you. Put a shot glass filled with Sambuca in the middle of the saucer. Then get a pint glass... And pour a shot or two of Cointreau into the glass. I'm going all in, so I'm going to have two shots then. Okay. Yeah. So you two shots of Cointreau in your pint glass. Now you have to light the Cointreau. So you might need the candle. So how yeah. are you going to? The hell are you going to do? I don't know. Light the Cointreau. Swirl the glass until the sides are nice and warm. Pour the lit Cointreau into the shot glass with the sambuca. Igniting the sambuca. And spilling the flaming mixture into the saucer. Right. This is an arsonist's dream, isn't it? Goodness. While swirling the pint glass over the flames to capture the alcoholic vapour. Mm-hmm. Shake some cinnamon from a safe distance onto the drink. <laughs> Behind the fire mask. And then cover the shot glass with a pint glass. I think, I think cinnamon is one of those things that acts as some kind of uh, explosive. 
So okay. you, you could either use cinnamon or gunpowder, <laughs> whichever you fancy. It's just cinnamon taste nicer, that's all really, isn't it? It still goes off with that. <laughs> then you blow out the flames and uh, take the pint glass off the saucer. Quickly, drop a few ice cubes into the glass and immediately seal in the alcohol vapour with your palm. Then shake the glass vigorously. And you then have to stick a straw through my fingers. If I'm, I'm shaking this pint glass, you have to stick a straw through my fingers and suck out all the vapour. Then the straw should be used to take down the shot and clean the saucer. <laughs> all of this should be done as quickly as possible and as safely as possible for full effect. And as safely as possible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> what a complicated... I, I don't know... There, no. there are adventures in life, and if you don't go off on an adventure in your life, then you know, it's going to be a pretty boring life. True. But that's a long way to go for a drink, isn't it? I think so. I mean, uh, it does make me think of the Christmas pudding with the brandy. And the year after year, it became a tradition in our house, especially once um, my kids were born, so that my, gra- my parents had grandkids. You know, it's, it's part of the fun, right? So um, the first year... Oh, Derek, you haven't got enough brandy. So it's gone out before it's yeah. even reached the table. Yeah. The next year, it burns for like 10 minutes. Yes. <laughs> On the verge of calling the fire brigade. <laughs> Crusty pudding. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, of those three drinks, I think it's just the... Uh, I mean, I don't think I'd... I, if I had to choose one, I'd go with your straightforward flaming Zambuca. Original Oils by Richard Leslie Lewis. Visit ambleyart.com A-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y-A-R-T dot com Browse a stunning range of original art or commission your own little piece of joy. Perhaps a portrait of a pet or a loved one or even your favourite celebrity. Each piece unique and original to you. Visit AmberleyArt.com A-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y-A-R-T dot com What have you got over there? Let me introduce you to Yichiro Miura. Ah! uh, From Amori City in Japan. The son of Kaizo Miura, a pro skier. Yichiro followed in his father's ski marks, if you will. Thank you. To become a downhill skier and a speed skiing competitor. Have you ever seen speed skiing? Yes. Nutters. Brilliant. Absolute. Yes. First grade nutters. These are the people that find the steepest slopes they can, grease their skis as much as they possibly can, spend hours and hours working on their tuck position to make themselves as aerodynamic as possible, point everything downhill... And then go as fast as they can. They can go up to or over 150 miles per hour. My God, no. On two thin planks of wood, basically. Surely the skin would come off their skeleton. It's madness, isn't it? Anyway, Miura, being one of these aforementioned nutters, became obsessed by finding higher and higher and steeper and steeper slopes. So, in pursuit of those things, he became an expert hiker. And then an expert mountain climber. He became, in 1970, 
the first person to ski on Everest. And actually, they made a film of that, a documentary called The Man Who Skied Down Everest. And that became the first sports film ever to win an Academy Award. Very good. Not content with that, between 1978 and 1985, he skied downhill at seven of the highest peaks in Europe. He had two heart surgeries in 2006 and then another one in 2007. He's 88 this year. It's only eight years since he became the oldest person to climb to the summit of Everest. He's 80 years old. And that is why Yuchiro Miura is my hero of the week. What a dude. Very good. I like the hero of the week feature that we do. Um, people may have missed it. Um, <laughs> but uh, he's definitely up there, isn't he? Yes. I mean, just the speed skiing at any age would do it for me because mm. I, I can't stand up on um, skates or skis or roller skates or anything like that. I've got no sense of balance at all. No, I've only been went with school on a school skiing trip and I was the one in the class that the instructor insisted on having by his side at all uh, times because he uh. was so worried about my safety. <laughs> <laughs> now, just watch Ben as he does this. You have to go down sideways, don't you? <laughs> Uh, I, I, you see, I wouldn't get in the ski lift. No, they're not fun. No, no, I've, I've seen the films. I, mm. I, you know, too many bad things have happened on ski lifts. But well done, him. Hero of the week. Pub quiz. Always up for a pub quiz. Questions this week. I'm going to test your, your general knowledge or the ability that you have, that inane ability of yours, to or innate ability of yours, not inane. I mean, yeah. You've got an inane ability, I know. <laughs> your innate ability. There's no point testing my inane ability. That is absolutely <laughs> well established. Uh, so uh, you have the ability, I understand, to work these things out, or not, as the case may be. Question one. Why are there so many left-handed carpenters in Egypt? Wow. Left-handed carpenters in Egypt. Hmm. Because there are lots. What is, it, is there? Have you got a percentage? Uh, no. No. But there are many, many, many left-handed carpenters in Egypt. So we'll come back to this. It's not like do... a particularly dark answer, is it? No, no. There is, it's a very good answer. I okay. like this answer. In fact, as answers go, this is the one you want to wrap up and give us a Christmas present. Oh, really? It, it's a cracking. Okay. There's no clue there. Don't read anything into that. That's just me being florid. Uh, question number two. If I say it's not true or false, it must be floating, what biologically am I talking about? <laughs> so... <laughs> It's not true, it's not false, it's a floater. <laughs> if I say, see, he has the mind of a nine-year-old boy. <laughs> if I say it's not true or false, it must right. be floating. Yeah. What, biologically, <laughs> am I talking about? It's just the biologically that's got me. He, he has his answer already. Yeah, right. And the third and final one is, which street in the UK is the only place where vehicles are required to drive on the right. 
Mm, that's an interesting mm. one. They're all interesting. That's a good one. Which street in the UK? Yeah, well, I'll narrow it down. I'll say London. Which street in London is the only place where vehicles are required to drive on the right? Okay. So why okay. are there so many left-handed carpenters in Egypt? If I say it's not true or false, it must be floating. What biologically am I talking about? And which street in the UK is the only place where vehicles are required to drive on the right. I said London, didn't I? Which street in London is the only place where vehicles are required to drive on the right? Back with the answers to that towards the end of our little podcast. I was talking to a chap the other day, um, and he mentioned to me that he was one of the very first recruits in the early days of the Auxiliary Fire Brigade. Yeah, like the Dad's Army of Fire Brigades. Kind of, yes, kind of like that. It was. It goes back to the Second World War. Um, they realised pretty early on that they'd need more firemen as the threat of bombing increased. So they trained up lots of young men but they couldn't just say, come and join the Auxiliary Fire Brigade. They had to do something to entice them to join. Mm-hmm. And I think this was the point of our conversation. Because I, I said, well, what was it that made you do this? Because he wasn't old enough to, to sign on, uh, to sign on and, and um, sign up. Right. To go in the Army or the Air Force or, or the Navy. He wasn't old enough at that point. But he could volunteer for the auxiliary fire brigade. I said, well, what made, you, what made you enlist? He said, well, they had a table tennis table. <laughs> and at the end of the night, they let us slide down the pole. Oh, wow. What more do you want, really? And that was enough. <laughs> now you couldn't do that if if we had to have auxiliary firemen now set up for whatever disastrous situation that we were living through. Mm. Can you imagine offering the youth of today the it's opportunity table. to play table tennis and slide down a fireman's pole? I reckon the youth of today. I mean, table tennis, yeah, but sliding down a fireman's pole—that's great fun for any generation Absol- and, and any gender. Yeah. Yes, male, female. Have you ever done it? No, I've never done that. I was offered the opportunity once, and I was too cowardly to do it. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, if anyone's listening and they can offer me the opportunity, then I'm well up for it. Just let us know on the email. Yeah, and he'll take his microphone along, yeah. and, uh, you and, can hear and, me and we'll scream. bring back the actuality. The far end of the bar at gmail.com. Answers to the pub quiz, then. Why are there so many left-handed carpenters in Egypt? Any idea? I, I mean, I've done some serious cogitation. Uh, is it something to do with the angle of the pyramids? I don't know. That's all I can think of. Makes sense, wouldn't it? Not really, no. You, you, <laughs> That's what I've got. And the pyramids <laughs> are built of wood, so therefore... <laughs> they would... <laughs> They wouldn't have needed left-handed carpenters, wouldn't they? They must have involved wood inside some way, it's not us. The answer is that when they were building the Suez Canal, the head carpenter was a left-handed Englishman. Ah. And he taught left-handed carpentry to the locals. 
oh. who have handed it down and handed it down and handed it down. Even the, so, even the right-handed people are left-handed carpenters. No, no, no. I'm not saying that all carpenters are left-handed, but there are many left-handed carpenters in Egypt, and the reason is because the guy who was the head carpenter on the Suez Canal, an English guy, taught left-handed carpentry to locals, mm. and they've just handed it down as oh, across the years. Well, they, he should have taught a few more, and then they might have made it a bit wider. <laughs> Uh, oh, they wouldn't have so they, many problems. They thought it was going to be plenty wide enough. They had no <laughs> idea that we were going to build ships the size of continents. <laughs> well, there you go. So then, this one was, uh, will cause you great hilarity. If I say it's not true or false, it must be floating. What biologically am I talking about? I mean, I've absolutely no idea. You, you weren't listening during biology, were you? <laughs> Uh, it's your ribs. The first seven sets of ribs are known as your true ribs. Right. Directly attached to the sternum. From the top down, is yeah. that then? Okay. The following five sets are known as false ribs. Okay. And the last two, the 11th and 12th ribs, are termed floating ribs. Uh, they're attached to the vertebrae only and not to the sternum or the cartilage coming off the sternum. Oh. In fact, some people are missing one or two pairs of floating ribs, whilst others have a third pair. So your true ribs are the first lot, mm -hmm. your false ribs are the second lot, and your floating ribs, well, they might have floated off completely, because you might not even have them. But see, you're doing it now, aren't you? You're um, checking your ribbage. I'm seeing it. My, I think mine are floating on my immense uh, belly. Sea of belliness. <laughs> <laughs> and third and final question to do with a street in London, the only place in London where vehicles are required to drive on the right. My best guess for this one is it's something to do with the royal palaces or the royal family or something like that. So, or, you know, around one of the... So I'm going to say, I mean, I've, I've, it's definitely not the Mall, but... Maybe one of the streets around Buckingham Palace, or is it, or is it Downing Street, somewhere like that? Ah, ah, Downing Street. Maybe it's Downing Street because all the press are on there. There's not much room on that road, is there? Uh, all right, I'm going to go with. Um, of the two, I reckon. I reckon the Royal Connection's more like... The Royal Connection. It, yeah, it's yeah. a shame you didn't go for Downing Street, actually, ah. because you would have been wrong there as well. <laughs> um, so just off the Strand mm. is the world-famous Savoy. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to the Savoy Theatre. Wonderful place. The road leading up to it is called the Savoy Court. The entrance to the Savoy Theatre is on the right-hand side. Is, it, is that the one with the big yes. like overhang? yes. I'm going to call it a porch. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure it's not a porch. The porch on the Savoy, <laughs> as described by the guys at the far end of the bar, <laughs> is world famous. But that little bit of road that goes from the Strand up to the front door of the Savoy, mm. the taxis go in on the right and they come oh. out on the right. Uh, and the reason, it's been like that for 100 years, uh, and it's... The reason is that the entrance to the Savoy Theatre is on the right-hand side of the road, 
and the idea is that drivers waiting to drop people off at the theatre won't block the entrance to the hotel. Oh, okay. But as I say, it's been around for 100 years, so it's also been suggested that another reason was it was put in place because traditionally, in a horse-drawn carriage, Mm. a lady or dignitary would sit behind the driver in in the carriage. By approaching the hotel on the right-hand side of the road, either the chauffeur or the hotel's doorman was able to open the door without walking around the carriage or the car, and the lady would breeze straight into the hotel. Uh, They wouldn't have to avoid any horse poo or... Or, no, or, and no, they, they were just, the, yeah. the door would be open, they'd step out and straight into the hotel. See, that's what I thought the answer was going to be, was that they drove up on the right so that Judy Garland, whoever's staying in the Savoy, doesn't have as far to walk. Uh, probably, although I don't think she would have been able to afford the Savoy when she came to London. Mm. Um, she was in dire straits. But, uh, but yeah, but, and it's the only street which is designated as drive on the right yeah. uh, in London, probably in the country. Unless you know differently. And if you do, then please email keep us. Keep it to yourself. Yeah, keep it to yourself, because we don't <laughs> like know-it-alls. <laughs> Listen, I've got places to go and things to do, and I expect you do too. Yeah, rest of my feet. So until next time, from him and me, reservoir. See you next time. Cheerio. That's time at the far end of the bar. You've been listening to Richard Lewis and Ben Orr. If you enjoyed your time with us, please don't forget to like and subscribe to make sure you catch the next episode. And find us on all the socials. Just search hashtag TFEOTB or email us at thefarendofthebar at gmail.com. Cheers! <laughs>